All right, Bitcoin accumulation country, it's that time of the week again. I'm your host, Coin Icarus. This is the Fun with Bitcoin podcast, sponsored by Crypto Cloaks. And we're in season three. This is episode 45. Hope everybody's having a great week. I sat down and had an amazing chat. It was actually scheduled this like months in advance. Finally got to sit down and speak with um, the, you know, the very philosophically inclined Robert Breedlove. And we talked about, uh, we talked about obviously Bitcoin and we talked about, you know, what it means to him and, you know, banking and slave money. And we also discussed his most recent article called Our Most Brilliant Idea. Anyways, before we get into that, we are going to talk about some dollar cost averaging and swan Bitcoin, and then on to the main event. For anybody who is interested in dollar cost averaging and who wants to be purchasing Bitcoin but doesn't want to be spending their time constantly watching the charts and listening to traders that they really have no idea whether these people are credible or not, and you kind of just want to put this in kind of in a passive sleep mode where you're simply just accumulating and hodling, being able to transfer that Bitcoin out to your own private address. So if you're interested in doing that and that falls in, in your wheelhouse, then you are looking for Swan Bitcoin. With Swan Bitcoin, the three main takeaways are we've, we can do automatic withdrawal from a bank account, automatic purchases of BTC. You can time them based on your uh, when you receive your check. You know, you can do it, uh, you know, let's say once um, you can do it once a month. Um, or you can do it per pay period as well. Um, there's lots of options for you to be able to customize how you purchase. And you could automatically withdraw to your, uh, your chosen address. So if you're interested in a Bitcoin-only platform um, that is doing the, uh, the great work of helping onboard people, then you definitely want to check out Swan Bitcoin. I'm going to have the, uh, the link to their website in the show notes. Without further ado, here is my chat with... Robert Breedlove. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for joining me on the Fun with Bitcoin podcast. I've got fellow Bitcoiner, um, CEO, and author Robert Breedlove on the podcast. It's really great to have you on. Um, you've got a lot of really fantastic Bitcoin work that goes incredibly in depth, not just touching on Bitcoin, but also. Um, touching on some of the philosophical aspects and even we'll say the socio-political aspects and man it's it's really uh, it's an honor to have you on my show thank you so much for joining me thanks Phil glad to be here um, so yeah we kind of you know we kind of misaligned a little uh, getting this uh, getting this going so uh, it's it's nice to you know it's nice to finally touch base and as is normal with the uh, the Fun with Bitcoin podcast, uh, I always like to go through the rabbit hole story. So, Robert, uh, where were you before Bitcoin, and how did you find Bitcoin? Sure. So, I my entire life, I've been a very curious person, um, and I think my initial expression of this curiosity was around the age of 10, 11, 12. Uh, really around the age of 13, I started, I was very curious about the stars as a kid. I just wanted to know what it all was. And um, I used to just lay on my, we had a trampoline when I was a kid. I used to just lay out there and stare at the sky for hours and wonder about it. And so when I started reading pretty heavily, um, I guess around the age of 10, um, and it just kind of ramped up 
towards the age of 13, I started, I just wanted to, to, you know, fuel this curiosity. And I started reading a lot of astrophysics. So I read the work of Stephen Hawking, Brian Greene, um, several other astrophysicists. And I was just trying to get to the bottom of like, what is everything? And um, I think that sort of set the stage for me to be a first principles thinker. I always wanted to understand things all the way to their core. Um, and this also got me into etymology a lot. Like I really wanted to, to understand where words came from, their origin, their meaning, their different contexts. And I, as I got into high school and college, my curiosity took me towards the socioeconomic domain and I landed on kind of the bottom of what I thought was the bottom of that rabbit hole, which is central banking. Um, and by the time I was in my early 20s, I had read The, the Creature from Jekyll Island. I had purchased um, an abridged version of The Creature from Jekyll Island called Dishonest Money, which is a great read. It's like the whole book compressed into 100 pages. And I ended up getting this book for family and friends at Christmas one year. And essentially was saying that this book contains many of the problems in the world. Like this points towards the source of many of the problems, many of the socioeconomic problems we see in the world today. And a few of my family members and friends read it. And this is like 2005 or six, I think. And they got back to me and they're like, okay, Great, very compelling argument. I see what you mean. However, what are we supposed to do about it? Yes. And I, I, I'll never forget that feeling of kind of being stumped slash powerless slash frustrated in a way. It was like we saw the, the darkness at the core of um, human civilization, but there wasn't a lot to be done about it. So that left a mark on me and um i would say that i was probably uh categorizable as a libertarian by that point and then fast forward to 2014 i've i've already earned my undergraduate master's degree in accounting and finance i had gone into the business world not really knowing what i wanted to do i just wanted to like be involved in where the general trajectory of my career was to be where technology, commerce, and finance intersected. And I had pretty much been a career CFO up until that point. And I'll never forget uh, a next moment that really stood out to me is I was in Costa Rica on vacation. It was my girlfriend and I, we were with one other couple. And the other couple, the gentleman, um, was a banker. He was a, a private banker at one of the large banks. And we're down in Costa Rica surfing, having a good time. And over a couple of beers later on in the day, we started having an argument about cryptocurrencies. And I had just, you know, heard of Bitcoin, owned a little bit, but wasn't down the rabbit hole at all. I was still operating under the fallacy that Bitcoin was like the model T of cryptocurrencies. Um, so we're having this argument and his position is that cryptocurrencies have 0% chance of success. Like it's totally a fad flash in the pan that will go away. 
And my thesis is the exact opposite. I'm like, it's completely inevitable. Like software will eat banks like they like it's eaten everything else. It's just it's just an oh, intermediate yeah. function that software can provide. Um, so had had out had out that argument and but at the time I always kick myself because I didn't I hadn't seen Bitcoin I hadn't had the Bitcoin epiphany yet right I was still uh, mistaken so then fast forward to 2016 17 which is kind of interesting it was actually the the marketing of Ethereum when I stumbled upon the concept of smart contracts. And then I had read Zabo's work on smart contracts. That was my light bulb moment. I was like, holy shit, the entire finance industry is going to be eaten by this. This isn't just like a tool that they'll be using on the periphery, um, you know, like trustless um, currency. This is something that's really going to eat the entire industry. And that's when I started investing heavily into the space. So I started making heavy investments across all the, the top market cap weighted crypto assets. And then as I like to say, where my money went, my mind followed. I actually think money is an extensibility of your mind. Um, so it really drew me in. And I, the more I studied the space, uh, the more I've come to see Bitcoin as very likely capturing 80% of all the value of this entire wave of innovation um, that we call, you know, crypto assets or the trust net, um, whatever you want to call it. And that's it. The, the Bitcoin through that process, like I mentioned, I've been a lifelong reader, but Bitcoin has changed me in many ways. And one of them is it gave me the impetus to write. It was like this, this tool that is disruptive to gold and gold being foundational to the entire legacy financial system, this is a really big deal. And people really don't understand. Um, frankly, many people haven't been through the gate and the gate being the question, the gate to the rabbit hole being the question, what is money, right? Many people haven't uh, penetrated that gate. So that's the aim of my writing, frankly, is to help people uh, gain access into the rabbit hole and, and hopefully a way that they find insightful and useful and enjoyable. I, I think that that's really fascinating. And um, I, I really like your, your story and that um, you specifically talk about, you know, being a curious kid and staring up at the stars. I, I think that I probably, uh, I can relate to that as I spent most of my time staring at the stars and the moon um, you know, kind of imagining what was beyond, right? Um, so it, it's it's kind of that curiosity that that kind of never goes away. I think you know, and you're you're fortunate enough to to keep that. And and I think I, I you know, based on what you're saying, it seems to me that that that's definitely part of you. Still have that childlike wonder, you know what I mean? And I think that that's maybe kind of what like helped you along with Bitcoin as well. And through many other yeah. things, because I, I see here, like, I mean, I, it's too bad that we only have like, you know, the time that we have, but you've written tons of stuff and you have like this book that you're, uh, that, that you're writing the time, money and soul. And you mm. also, you know, and you also do the, uh, you know, the asset investment, the parallax digital, and you also mm. have your medium articles. So it's like, there, there's a serious breadth of work that you've created from this curiosity. 
Yeah, this Bitcoin is undoubtedly my life's work. Uh, I have I have one tattoo. I got it in November 2018. When Bitcoin was at the bottom of its most recent bear market. Nice. The Bitcoin emblem. Um, <laughs> and so I'm very, very much, I have skin and soul in the game. Um, and I, I do consider Bitcoin to be a battle for freedom and truth in the world. And uh, I guess the best analogy is that it's, and I wrote about this in my, my piece, Masters and Slaves of Money. I describe fiat currency as a pyramid scheme, which yes. uh, that is how it is actually designed. It is designed to confiscate wealth from the lowest in society, those the poor, those living on fixed income, uh, retirees, pensioners, those using fiat currency as a store of value, as a place to park wealth. Um, central banking is designed to confiscate wealth from those individuals and reallocate it to those with asymmetric access to the, the, the currency printer, which are the politically favored few, typically central bankers, politicians, um, and people close to them. So it is, it's an evil institution, frankly. Um, you know, Robin Hood stole from the rich to give to the poor and we called him a good guy, but we have central banking that steals from the poor to give to the rich at scale. So I don't know what else to call it other than evil. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's, you know, what's really scary is that we, you know, um, as you know, right, you read uh, Creature from Jekyll Island, you know, of very few, you know, very few people behind closed doors coerced, you know, so that they could centralize that power and centralize that control. And, and people don't seem to realize the, the, the truly detrimental effect that it has. I, I think that you've touched on this as well, but like, um, you know, like imagine like, you know, like we see the world that we've created with fiat dollars. Like we, we have, I think we have very little conception of the world we could create with, you know, with some like with hard money, like Bitcoin. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, in terms of if you look at humanity and consider our our purpose or aim to be civilization building, which would include generating innovations, uh, elevating our morality, right, um, and all these other um creating more profound art, right? Things that, that elevate the human experience and allow us to engage in more trustful and productive relationships. Um, you know, we've come a long way from, from being a stone age people fighting over the latest freshest kill to being able to summon a car with your smartphone and jump in the back of a backseat with a stranger that will you know zoom you off from point a to point b so we're, we're we reshape our own conscious evolution through innovation and through civilization building and i think that's what we are right we're we are designed to build to create um in that biblical sense you know we're made in the image of god god is the word and we express our creativity into the world through the logos, which is our word, words and actions. And um, that's, you know, that's what we are. So in that context, gold was one of the best ideas 
we ever had to incentivize ourselves to civilize ourselves because it, it gave us a form of wealth that was securable, right? It was much easier to defend than food or territory or most other assets. And it became this common medium through which we could conduct trade. And trade is the, the act that interconnects us all, right? Even if um, you could consider how many layers of the supply chain, say your computer had to go through, right? How many how much knowledge had to be accumulated to assemble all of the components and innovations that make up your computer and then how many physical touches did it have to to go through to arrive at your doorstep like we are connected uh to the entire world through just a few degrees of trade and in that sense money like free market selected money like gold is the most civilizing force there's ever been um but the, the sinful nature of man, uh, you know, centralized custody of gold, which has part, which is partly due to the technological failings of gold, as I go into my most recent piece titled Our Most Brilliant Idea. Uh, gold, of the five properties of money, which are divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, and scarcity, gold was the best across all dimensions, but it still lacked in the divisibility department, the portability department, and the recognizability department. So if gold could be subdivided ad infinitum, there'd be no need to abstract it into a paper currency, right? To, to make it more transactable. If it were perfectly portable, that would mean it could move at the speed of light, which would mean it has zero mass, which would mean you could conduct final settlement globally at the speed of light, and you could secure it very easily because it would have zero mass, right? It would just be pure information, essentially, which is what Bitcoin is. And if it were perfectly recognizable, then anyone could verify the veracity of money instantaneously. We wouldn't need a public stamp from the government saying, this is one ounce of gold certified, or this is this $10 is redeemable for gold. Um, so these those technological failings of gold formed the attack surface exploited by central banks. And they, they introduced paper-backed, uh, gold-backed paper for ostensibly for convenience purposes. But when that redeemability to gold was revoked, we moved into the domain of this uh, pyramid scheme that we call fiat currency. So they've essentially taken the trust that was placed in them by the public and abused it. And as we sit in 2020, we are at the peak, co peak consequences of that abuse. I absolutely agree. And um, it's good that you mentioned that about, um, about gold um, and leading into your, uh, your most recent article. Um, the, uh, the article is, titled, is uh, titled Our Most Brilliant Idea. And mm. um, you, you interestingly, it's interesting that, that you, you talk about the, uh, you know, the logos. And I, I think that a lot of people don't really realize how not necessarily have taken the time to examine how something comes into reality, right? Because mm. before, right? Because before we say it, right, we think it, but before we think it, it's still out there. Like that, that information is almost like, it's almost like out there for anyone to grab. And it's, it's kind of interesting when you really think about it. And then, of course, right, we go from the idea 
to the, you know, uh, like it, it starts off as a, a, a light idea. And then we kind of go more into depth. And as we go in more into depth of an idea, it becomes more and more real. And I have to say that with Bitcoin, that that's kind of, that was kind of one of the things that, that also happened, you know, like as it was, you know, as it was foreign to me, like it's interesting, right? Money, we don't understand money and yet it's so personal, but Bitcoin, we sit there and like, we don't understand it. And yet it stays abstract because we don't understand it. But money, but our our fiat dollars, right? The the pyramid scheme money that, for some reason, even though it makes no sense and it's you know created with the mandrake mechanism and it's all hocus pocus, that for some reason, we totally get. <laughs> so, well, we we don't get it. We that's think right. <laughs> we get it. We think it's like this is. There's a great essay called "This Is Water." Um, I think it was actually a commencement speech. Uh, at the university, but the the punchline of the, the whole thing is they're two small fish swimming along, they pass a third fish. Third fish is an older, wiser guy. And he says, hey fellas, how are you doing? Water's great, isn't it? And then he swims along, two young fish keep swimming and they stop and look at each other and they say, what is water? So it's as if money is this economic water, it, it surrounds us, it's all pervasive. And because it's hidden in plain sight and we just use it every day without thinking about it, that very few people understand it. And the only reason we have value for paper currency is, is as a carryover from its redeemability for gold. So it's as if, you know, paper currency is just a ghost and Thomas Jefferson said this just a ghost of real money right it's just an echo of what gold was and um yeah they, I, I I argue in the piece actually that when you really get into the logos like what is it um and this is I mean this is biblical right yep. God told Adam <laughs> to name all of the animals of the land like it's almost as if Things are not, things are real, absent our perception of them, but they become uh, almost hyper real when we represent them in word or symbol, because all of a sudden we can move those things, we can represent these things in cognitive space, and then they can be subjected to all of our, to thinking, right? And thinking acts as this mental staging area for future action. So we can spin up a situation we can change the, the aspects and avatars in that particular situation. We can run through potential action simulations in our mind, and then we can decide which course of action we think is best. So we have, it's almost like a game generator or simulation generator we have between our ears. <laughs> um, and it's what we use to, to pierce space-time and decide what we're going to do, right? And this could be a strategic action, like you're developing a business plan or something, or this could be a visualization. If you're in sport or you're, you're cliff jumping right into water, like you can visualize your movements before you do them. Yep. And that's a, that's an extremely powerful tool for anyone that's ever been in athletics. Like I, I did competitive Olympic weightlifting for years. It's all about visualization. 100%. You sit there and visualize your movements repeatedly um, and then you, you reinforce that visualization through action, right? Through executing the lift. 
And that's how you sharpen your technique over time. And that's how you win competition. So I think there's a big analogy there for, for human action in the free market. And I argue that thinking itself, it is an expression of rationality. Uh, the root word of which clearly is ratio. Because what you're doing when you're thinking is you're setting things against one another, right? Situation A against situation B, avatar A against avatar B. You're tweaking them uh, at the periphery and then running these simulations to compare which course of action is best, right? To achieve your intended aim. And that thinking process is very intimately connected in many cases, especially in the sphere of socioeconomics, to money, right? And money itself is just denominating exchange ratios in monetary terms. So instead of saying a house costs 11 cars or a car costs 152 chairs, we say this house costs $440,000, right? Or this car costs $40,000. So we're just denominating exchange ratios in a common language of economic numeracy that we call money. And that it, it adds uh, economic value or efficiency to thinking itself. So money as a medium through which we communicate exchange ratios is directly related to our internal processes of rationality. So these are actually both expressions of the logos that feed back into one another, right? So it, through money, it's as if we project our extended mind into the world, right? We're, we're peering into the minds of other entrepreneurs through the price signal. And every entrepreneur that makes a trade decision, like I'm gonna sell this house or buy this car, the market or the economy is responding adaptively by saying, we're gonna produce less houses and produce more cars based on this increment in uh, supply and demand. So the whole thing, <laughs> all of it, like we're, we're almost this one collective superorganism, the socioeconomic superorganism communicating through the logos of thinking and prices, which are communicated through money. And it's, it's, it's fucking amazing. You know, it, it, it's so, this totally new way to look at the world. So I, I, I have to ask, right? I, I mean, I don't know if you ever saw any of the, uh, the Twitter battles about whether or not Bitcoin has a social layer, but I, I'm always, I'm of the proponent that it does, right? I, I think that, you know, I, th I think Bitcoin is social. What's your, uh, what's your take on that? Does Bitcoin have a social layer? How could anyone argue otherwise? I know. Every, every, everything that has a market capitalization has a social layer. That's what the market capitalization is. The, the there's a supply and there's a demand and there's a price. So the demand aspect of it would be social. I, I believe that the argument was, was that the, the, it doesn't have a social layer because the social layer was a, um, uh, a result of using it, you know, a result of partaking in the ecosystem, which to me, I, I didn't, I obviously, I don't agree with that. Um, I, I just, I, that's, I think an, that's an ignorant argument. If you're a market <laughs> participant, there's, there's a social layer to every asset that has a market capitalization. Anyone that says otherwise is wrong. I agree. Awesome. Okay. So, uh, let's, um, uh, let's dig into your, uh, the, the, our most brilliant idea. Let, let's give a, cause I mean, don't get me wrong. It's like, it, it it's, it's a huge read and I don't think we're going to cover it in, in 25 minutes, but, uh, well, it's actually my shortest read yet. This is, is the shortest it? thing I've written. I feel really proud of it. I've been working my way towards a 10 minute read. 
this one come, clocks in at, I think, 20 minutes uh, down from my last shortest read, which was 36 minutes. So I am zeroing in on a 10-minute piece. So I'm proud that this one's only 20 minutes. Here, I, I'll, I'll send you a link to my, to, to my good five-minute five minute piece that pales in comparison to your work, okay? I'll show you how the, <laughs> I'll sh I'll show you how the few-minute work gets done. <laughs> All right. But, uh, but, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, here, let's, uh, let's dive into it. So um, our most brilliant idea. Um, you started off by saying ideas ambulate humanity across history. So um, again, here you go. We start off with, you know, it's critical. We construct socioeconomic structures conducive to the creation of new ideas. So I guess, you know, like, what was the uh, what was the foundation for this uh, you know for this article like what got you to write this article? Yeah, so I went on the Pomp podcast back in February, and I had written an open letter to Ray Dalio about Bitcoin, which is my longest writing. I think it's over a hundred minutes, maybe one hundred and four. So don't start with that one. Save that <laughs> one for last. Um, and I was trying the. The point of that piece was to explain Bitcoin from first principles to Ray Dalio, who is the CEO of Bridgewater, the largest hedge fund in the world. Um, he had put out a book titled Principles, in which he explicated his, wor his worldview on work and life through this set of principles. And at the pinnacle of that worldview is a cultural paradigm that he incepted at Bridgewater called the idea meritocracy. And the idea meritocracy is essentially uh, an organizational structure that seeks to surface the best ideas without regard to uh, organizational hierarchy or politics or, um, or nepotism, any of these things that, that infect most traditional organizations. Ray has um, implemented a number of tools and processes to try and um, have his organization get to the best ideas and make investment decisions on them. And it's, it's really interesting, um, but the, that's a whole rabbit hole in, in into itself. And I suggest <laughs> you read the piece if you wanna go into that. But the gist of it is that what he's essentially implemented or attempted to implement within his organization is a free market for ideas. He wants a, an environment where ideas can compete freely and fiercely such that only the strong survive, right? Only the, the best are left standing and those best ideas fuel their investment and an organizational decision-making. Um, and so that was digging into that, I, as I was describing Bitcoin through these principles of action, I came to see trade itself as the way we generate ideas, which the economists would say market participants trade to achieve the division of labor, which essentially means uh, we're exploiting comparative advantage, right? So if I'm better and faster at making A, you're better and faster at making B, we are both better off by concentrating on me on A, you on B and trading, right? We increase our aggregate productivity 
by specializing in trading, right? So they call that the division of labor. And another, another, or the mirror of the division of labor is knowledge specialization. So by focusing on one small component, right? If I can just really make hats so damn good, the market just loves the hats that I make that I get very specialized in hat making. And I can produce them better, cheaper, and sell them into the market such that other people can do the same. They can just zero in on a specific craft and get really good at it. And then when they sell it into the market, everyone benefits, right? So we're, we are, again, operating as a single socioeconomic superorganism. We're like cells in that body. And those cells develop a more specialized purpose, the broader the scope of trade becomes. And that's, that's why there's such incentives to globalize, while there are such incentives to develop larger markets, right? Because we, the more we increase aggregate productivity, the more the cost of living comes down and the more easily we achieve uh, and satisfy our wants, right? We, we, we satisfy them to ever higher degrees in ever less time through trade. That's the whole point. And this entire process is driven by free trade. So the, the socioeconomic systems that we put in place that optimize for free trade outcompete other ones, right? This is the classic 20th century ideological contention between American capitalism and Soviet communism. American capitalism outcompeted Soviet communism because it was more productive, right? We generated more wealth, right? Yes. Soviet Russia collapsed because they, one, they didn't have price signals, right? They, they tried to eliminate the profit motive and replace it with nationalistic faith and devotion. And that just doesn't work. You can't allocate capital efficiently. Um, again, that, that free market intelligence is encumbered. If you don't let the market trade and figure out uh, what resources, where they are best employed and how they are best used um, as guided by the individual profit motives of participants, then the whole thing collapses. Um, and that's what the world economy is. It is an idea generating supercomputer and the quality and quantity of our best ideas are generated and maximized through free trade. So anything that we introduce that impedes free trade, which is any form of regulation, any form of government oversight, any policy, any police state, any politician, these are all impediments to free trade, right? Unless the market determines that there's a consensual need from buyer and seller to place any of those things in the marketplace, then they are by definition an impediment to free trade and they constrict ideation through trade and its physical manifestation, wealth creation. So that's the point of the piece is to say that this whole global market is as if we're, we're wiring together all of our minds in a, a nexus of interconnected consciousnesses we call the free market. And any blockages we introduce, which are largely from government, we impede our ability to, to ideate and generate wealth. Yeah, I mean, at this point, right? I, I mean, everything is, everything is essentially um, being constricted by the quality, I, I'd say, you know, the quality of the money that we have, right? Um, you know, because, of course, because they inflate away the wealth, um, 
you know, we constantly have to grind on that wheel to, you know, continually feed more and more dollars so that we can just uh, essentially so that we can continue to just live the way that we live without taking those extra steps, you know, not everybody, or I'd say less people being able to take those extra steps uh, in order to, you know, really add to the, you know, the, our existence, you know, in humanity or being able to, to innovate, being able to step up and, um, you know, and I, I guess just, uh, you know, kind of really add to the positive nature of, of existence and what it can be. Well, there's inflation, which is just theft, right? Again, if we're becoming more productive and our ideas are becoming better at satisfying our wants, the prices of things should naturally decline over time. The more intelligent the market becomes, the lower the cost of living should become, should commensurately become for market participants. That's the purpose of the economy in the first place. Um, we have been indoctrinated into the belief that prices naturally go up every year, and that's just the way it is. That is just uh, due to the entire history of government theft via inflation, right? That's all it yes. is. So we're all just under the thumb of this slave master that confiscates wealth from us via inflation and somehow spun up this ideological misdirection called Keynesian economics that justifies it or attempts to justify it. And it's, it's just total fucking bullshit, frankly. Yeah. And then if you layer onto that, these regional fiefdoms on money that we call central banks, right? Every country has its own currency. They're all floating against one another. It's almost like we've reverted the entire free market system to uh, one of partial barter, right? Uh, you have to go into currency changers and you have to figure out how many dollars are my liras worth? How many liras are my yen worth? And this, that entire ecosystem is an impediment to free trade, right? The fact that you can't, we don't have a, a single global money and it's accepted everywhere, um, despite massive market forces toward that end, right? And that's why the dollar is a global reserve currency because the market tends to zero in on one money because money is just a token of trade, right? It's just intent, it's a tool for executing, negotiating, calculating trade more quickly. And trade is a singular human phenomenon, right? We only need one money. You only need one tool for that job. Um, but through corruption and monopolization, we've been left with this whole scattered field of, of national currencies. And further, that market of foreign exchange, uh, banks siphon, they, they run an arbitrage off of those exchange rates called the Forex trade. It clocks in at $5 trillion of volume per day, per day. Oh the entire gosh. global GDP is $100 trillion. So we're talking about the entire the volume of that market in 20 days is equal to the annual output of the world right this is a it is the largest volume market in the world and it's purely parasitic it adds zero value to the real economy no one's building or making anything there's just guys figuring out how to fuck one group uh and oh scalp God. a little bit of money as they transition from one currency into another it's a total it's a giant machine for for confiscating wealth from largely unsuspecting people. People don't understand what, how this thing operates. Um, and then, then it goes even further when you consider where the proceeds of, those, of that inflation 
are being uh, spent, which is largely to erect more laws, right? To build more government bodies. All again, as Cicero said, the more laws, the less justice, right? When you create a market for appeals and excuses, you're likely to get a lot of both. And all of these things impede free trade and its associated creation of, of new ideas, innovations, and wealth. And then very importantly, and this is where Bitcoin uh, matters a lot, is that a lot of, frankly, all world wars, World War I, World War II, the only reason we had wars that were able to be perpetrated at scale and at such a duration is because the governments had access to a money monopoly. So instead of being limited to waging war based on their own balance sheet, right? Such that their own reserves, when they run out of money or they run out of the ability to borrow or, or explicitly tax their citizens, they instead could rely on this invisible implicit tax via inflation to just keep waging war until their entire citizen citizenry was destitute, which is exactly what happened in Germany, right? They lost yep. World War One, World War II, and they hyperinflated both times. So it gives this, it's this insidious mechanism for sucking value out of an entire productive economy instead of being limited to your own resources to go to war. So that, and that's the greatest, most important aspect of Bitcoin is that it's disruptive. As I like to say, it's disruptive to gold, it's disruptive to centralized government, and it's disruptive to global warfare. I have this sneaking suspicion that the central bankers are essentially um, working to, you know, to own the entire world through fiat currency, because through this cycle of booms and busts, who ends up owning all of these resources and assets? I, centralized. I, I, I feel like it's the banks, the hands, you know, of course. Yeah, the shareholders of central banks only get richer, right? While the gap, the gap between rich and poor only gets wider. And that's the gap they're harvesting, by the way, right? They're yep. feeding off this middle class, which is the productive class. Um, and this is not theory. This is not highfalutin bullshit I'm feeding you. Look at oh, the no. collapse of any, any great civilization throughout history. Currency debasement and erosion of the middle class presages societal collapse. And that's what we're seeing today. People are mad. We got protests worldwide, right? You know, people, the, the anger is misdirected largely, but at the core, the black core of all of this is monopolization and manipulation of the money. You, in your work, you quoted uh, John Milton uh, from Paradise yes. Lost, right? Yeah. Evil, evil is the force that believes its knowledge is complete. Okay. That's right. Um, now that that's a very interesting statement um, because th there's another type of quote that goes along the lines of um, that essentially a you know a, a fool a fool believes that his knowledge is everything and he essentially misses the message or, or the wisdom because he takes the knowledge. So he just simply takes the knowledge and he gives up on the wisdom, the message that it's supposed to convey, you know, thinking that it's the, the, you know, the actual end itself. Yeah. And the, the antithesis of that would be the wisest guy that ever lived, Socrates. The only thing I know is that I know nothing at all. Right. Yep. 
I love that. Epistemic, there, there is, there's an opacity to epistemology and there are limitations to epistemology. Epistemology being the study of, of knowledge. Knowledge is inherently limited. Knowledge and ideas, they are just our map or our representations of reality, right? The, rea- the sands of reality are always shifting. So we constantly have yes. to update our map. And communism was based on the idea that they had the ultimate idea, right? We figured it out. <laughs> yeah. We're going to own all the means and ends of production. This is the most perfect utopian vision ever. All you have to do is bow, bend the knee to the state and it's paradise forever, right? So they, they're in their hubris and arrogance had declared that they found the ultimate idea. And in doing so, cut themselves off from the generative source of ideas, which is trade, right? And we saw the outcome. Productivity collapsed, right? Their economy absolutely collapsed. Millions starved. Millions more were slaughtered by the state. Because the other problem with this utopian vision is that all of a sudden, if, if it's not working for you, right? If I'm sad or I'm hungry or something is not working in my life, well, what's, what's, it's my word versus the utopian state. So all of a sudden you become treasonous, right? As this thing, this uh, adherence to the single unified plan dispo- dispossesses you. As you lose, you know, productivity has collapsed, so you can't gain access to as much food or shelter or whatever your basic needs are not being met. By virtue of your basic needs not being met, you are by definition of the utopian communist vision, a treasonous actor. Because you, the plan works for everyone, right? It's a utopia. Yeah. If it's not working for you, then you something's wrong with you. The state is never wrong. Um, <laughs> and this is what, and this is where central banking, by the way, is the fifth measure in Marx's playbook, right? He wrote in 1848 a manifesto to the Communist Party, the fifth measure of which required centralized control of cash and credit by the state capital with an exclusive monopoly. So central banking is straight out of Marx's playbook. And if you look at what central banks do today, they are essentially saying implicitly, they are more intelligent than this distributed computing system we call the free market. So the, the, the Fed, if we just look at the US, has seven governors, right? That, that make monetary yeah. policy and interest rate decisions for the every user of dollars worldwide, which is a lot of the world. They have 20,000 employees total. Every human being has an attention span, a conscious attention span of 120 bits per second, right? This can be measured in data flow. If you multiply that 120 bits per second times, even if you assume all the Fed's employees are fully engaged and contributing to their decision-making, multiply by 20,000 versus multiplying that 120 bits per second by 7.5 billion worldwide, right? That's, the, your, your, that's how you quantitatively weigh the centralized computing model of the Fed versus the distributed computing power of the free market. And I've run those numbers. The free market is 3.8 million percent more intelligent than the Fed, right? <laughs> Further, awesome. <laughs> the, Fed, the Fed is operating on the premise that their, their, the Keynesian economic model that they impose on the world 
is final knowledge, right? This is how you manage, quote unquote, manage an economy as if, by the way, any human being had ever successfully managed a complex system in history without triggering a cascade of unintended consequences. It's peak hubris and arrogance, right? This is, this is, is. Uh, Soviet communism all over again, just limited to the sphere of money. They are implicitly saying, just as Soviet Russia did, we have the ultimate idea, right? Our knowledge is final. And in doing so, they are cutting themselves off from the process, the free market processes, which continually revivify knowledge. And that's why central banking doesn't work. That's why it fails. And that's why it's evil, right? It assumes its knowledge is complete and it imposes that belief on the rest of the world and gives no one a choice, no one a choice to opt out, right? They have violently or coercively suppressed every competitor to the dollar throughout all history. And again, this is where Bitcoin is so important. Bitcoin is a superior monetary competitor that cannot be stopped by fiat decree. And I, I just want to uh, we're gonna we're we're gonna finish the uh, the podcast on this quote here that you put um, that goes along with that. Um, there is one thing stronger than all the armies in the world, and that is an idea whose time has come, uh, by Victor Hugo. And I, I totally love that you quote that. And the second I read that, I immediately thought of Bitcoin. I, I'm not even talking about in your work. I mean, I, I had read that quote previously. And as soon as mm -hmm. I read that, it, it just right away, it, it screams Bitcoin. And that's exactly what this is. And, and it totally cannot be stopped because it really exists at the will of the people. That's right. It's as gold was. Bitcoin is an expression of the collective logos, right? It is true democracy. It is a true direct democracy, which by the way, this being around election day, 2020, uh, I tweeted this out that the democratic process of voting is an illusion designed to keep you docile while the government continues its perpetual confiscation via inflation. That's all it is, right? This, this idea of a representative, this idea of a representative democracy may have been useful when it was set up in 1776 and our information systems could not support a direct democracy. I'm not going to argue with that. But today we have systems, information systems that, that totally supplant the need for a representative democracy. Further, it's the way you spend your money is the real vote, right? That's where you're expressing your collective logos and you're allocating it into one group of people or one organization or one innovation or another, right? That is, it is that voting system in the free marketplace that actually determines uh, what, what fails and what succeeds. And so this, idea of Bitcoin, right? It is essentially an unstoppable idea at this point. Um, no one knows how to shut it down. And it gives free people, right? You can, you can think of bit by buying Bitcoin, you're casting a ballot against all politicians. You're saying this whole thing doesn't work. I'm going to vote for an alternative system, a free market system. I'm voting against monetary communism and I'm voting for monetary capitalism, right? Yes. And it's in that way, I, I say that, I like to say that Bitcoin is fuck you money, 
right? It gives you the power to say fuck you to every policy, every politician and every police state in the world simultaneously, just by moving your savings into Bitcoin. And there's no, like it, the more deeply you get into this rabbit hole, the more you will see we've been operating under a hallucination, right? We, oh yeah. We have organized crime is the government, right? The government is the biggest thug that monopolizes the money because the money is all that matters, frankly. You're given the illusion of the vote to buy your passivity and think there's some level of participation, which I'm not, we've come a long way, right? We're not, we're not um, ancient Egypt with pharaohs. So natural, we've come much closer to natural law throughout all these iterations of socioeconomic systems, but we're not there yet is my point. And I think Bitcoin gets us there, right? There's, there's the possibility that Bitcoin could be this super state to which all other states ultimately bend the knee because they, once you take away the ability of a state to steal from you via taxation and inflation, then they necessarily shrink, right? It's a, they go from being a monopolist to being a free market actor. Yep. A free market actor that's forced to be accountable to the preferences of their customers to remain relevant. Otherwise, their customers just take their business elsewhere and the organization naturally shrinks. So I think Bitcoin is this renaissance in free market forces and it's taking us back to the truth of capitalism, right? We've only had glimmers of capitalism before Bitcoin because every government throughout history has monopolized money, has, has communized money, if you will. So I think we're seeing, um, as we saw the collapse of 20th century, uh, 20th century Soviet Union that attempted to communize an entire economy, we're gonna see the same collapse of communism in the sphere of money in the 21st century. I totally agree. That's bullish as fuck. Yeah. Buy Bitcoin. <laughs> All right, Robert, man, thank you so much for, for coming on my podcast. Um, do you have any uh, any quick final thoughts for the uh, for the listeners? Hmm. I, I really feel as if the digital age is a renaissance. Like, I think we're going to look back on this as as we look back on, you know, the Renaissance we saw in and around the enlightenment where people were waking up from, I guess, having just absolute faith in religion, right? And we started to see the practicality of science. And um, in many ways, the pendulum now has swung too far the other direction. It's like we, communism was that the enthusiasm from the enlightenment in science, like the pendulum swung too far, right? We thought we could yes. just, um, scientism could do everything, right? We could just give all the power to the state. They'll, they'll sit down with our committees and bureaucrats and systemize everything and it will be perfect, right? We can, sci we can scientifically generate a utopia, right? That's what communism was. So there's gotta be some balance here between natural law, which has a lot of religious uh, Judeo-Christian underpinnings and a balance between the, the pragmatism and practical utility offered by science. And I think Bitcoin is this middle ground, right? It's almost, as I say in the piece, maybe it's, it's like a religion born from computer and economic science. 
Um, it really could become this entire new mode for human organization. And I just encourage people to study, you know, I, I, that's, I hope in my writing to pique people's curiosity and encourage them to go deeper because I think you can only benefit. The more you study Bitcoin, the more you ask yourself that question, what is money? You're going to get closer and closer to truth. And, and it's, it will emerge for you in many ways and everyone sees it differently through their own lens. But I promise you that it can only improve your own life, your family's life, um, and arguably, if Bitcoin is successful in the way we contemplate it, will improve the lives of everyone for the rest of your uh, genealogical history, right? 100%. Um, so just invest your time studying this. You know, it's, we're, you're, you're being taken advantage of, whether you realize it or not. And I don't, this could apply to anyone, right? You can be a super successful investment banker, um, but th this system it's not good for you. Even if you're benefiting from it, if I'm Augustin Karstas, like the, the, the guy that runs the central bank for central banks, he benefits madly from the system, but it's not good for him. Look at him. He's 600 pounds, right? He's yeah. morally destroyed inside. Of he's course. an awful human. He's, <laughs> he's terrible. So we need to get back to the free market, I think, to fix price discovery, innovation, and virtue creation. I love it. All right. Thank you so much for coming on my pod. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Phil. This is awesome. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed my chat with uh, with Robert Breedlove. Um, he is really, I, I think he's a totally out there guy. I love the way that, um, you know, he marries together the, you know, the philosophy and the ideals of Bitcoin and, you know, kind of, you know, makes it relevant for us today. Anyways, his contact details will be in the show notes. Of course, if you want to reach me, Twitter or Telegram, I'm at CoinIcarus. If you want to shoot me an email, I am CoinIcarus at funwithbitcoin.com. Thank you all for listening. Catch you all next time. <laughs>